0: So we, we find then in the third chapter of the book of Luke that Jesus is being baptized. And then it says that at the end of the chapter, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a physical, a physical dove, filled with the Spirit. And then in chapter 4, we see that Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, is being led by the Spirit of God, into the wilderness, where he fasts for 40 days and where he is tempted of the devil for 40 days. So typically we think that, oh, there were just some three little uh, uh, temptations that the, the, the enemy threw at him, but for 40 days uh, he had to deal with, with the enemy. And so I, I found it a little strange, and I'm going to repeat myself a little bit because there's, there's so, much, so much there. I found it a little strange that when somebody is led by the Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. That that caused me to pause a little bit. Because in in, in our thinking, when somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit, we're thinking, wow, now I'm going to heal people. Uh, people, raise from the dead, or move mountains, or whatever. But we found that Jesus, went that the Spirit of God, it was not on, on his own. That the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness because, why? God wanted to take him to school. God wanted him to pre- prepare him because here is where he's launching his public ministry. So even the Son of God had to go through some training. And, and and into a time where he could talk to his father and the father wanted to talk to him and give him instruction as to what his ministry was going to look like and what was going to happen in his ministry. so he went into a a form of solitude. Now, loneliness is the word that was invented to express fear of being alone. But solitude is the word that was invented to express the joy and the glory of being alone. Solitude. And so, doesn't it make sense that when you sense that your ministry is going to take off, and you cannot just decide when you're going to start a ministry. Obviously, it must be God that directs you to do that, right? Because otherwise, God, when he directs you and you follow him, he takes responsibility over you. And so he leads and guides you and gives you instructions and makes everything uh, pertinent uh, for your ministry, uh, including whatever it takes, right? Uh, where he, he sends you on a mission and he gives you the provision. Um, so there is Jesus. In the wilderness, and the father talks to him, and he fasts for 40 days and maybe longer, but it is is after the 40 days that you get the encounter uh, where where it it, it writes about uh, the, the temptation and so on and so forth. And he was hungry. So it stands to reason that if Satan is going to try to have a victory over him, that Satan was going to tempt him in the area of his physical need of hunger. Right? Makes sense? Um, it, 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 that is that is how he often works. He he sees a need that you have, and he counterfeits the provision because God wants to make the provision for you. And if you're wise, you take God's provision instead of His provision. And so Satan says to him, "Well, you're hungry, so here here's a stone. If you just turn it into bread, oh, you'll be problem is solved. You can eat." But though Jesus was hungry, he had no appetite of what the enemy was offering him. And I want you to know that your effectiveness in ministry is going to be directly related to your ability to say no to physical need. That's why... Fasting is so important. It makes the point. It makes the point that you say to God, I have more need of spiritual than I have of physical. Um, so, uh, he tells Satan, of course, as, as we all know from Scripture, that the best way to defend yourself against the enemy is with Scripture. And Jesus says to "Man shall not live by bread alone." Get lost. Then Satan takes him to the top of the temple and shows him. No, I'm sorry, not the top of the temple, but he shows takes a place and shows him all the all the uh, kingdoms of the world, and he says, "All these kingdoms are given to me for me to give to whomever I want." And If you will just worship me, I give it all to you. If you will just worship me, I give it all to you. That's how he sells so much to us. It is that we want the kingdoms of the world, whatever form that takes. It might be whatever. Somebody is promising you a beautiful car if you just do some such and such. Somebody is offering you a lot of money. If you'll just do such and such. And three weeks ago, I gave you the example of, you know, Locked Abroad. Have you ever seen that show? Locked Abroad? I don't watch that show very often, but every once in a while, when you go boom, 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 I get stuck on it and locked abroad because it's a a raunchy deal. It is a drug dealer promising you that if you just deliver this package, then you'll get $20,000. How many people fall for it? So they go. They cry in their hands. That means they sweat in their hands. All the way through as they are describing what they're going through. And then they actually make the delivery. And when they meet the guy that promised them that they were going to get $20,000, guess what? There is no $20,000. There is only $10,000. Because he wants to entice them to do this trick one more time. So he says, well, listen, if you deliver this other package, then I'll give you $10,000 and 20000 more. So, and then, of course, you know that sooner than later, you're going to get caught. The guys that are there with the, uh, the customs, you see the custom people, but there's people that are looking at you from another place on cameras and, and checking you out. And they are isolating the people that look nervous. The people that look, are fidgety and, you know, and they say, hey, hey, you need to check him out. Send the canine to him. And when the canine comes to you and he goes, rawr, 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 rawr. okay, they want to check you out now. <laughs> they go through, you, through everything that you have. So uh, the, the way of selling you on something to make it attractive, but you know it's wrong. So I, I, I want to just encourage you that when someone, in, and, and, and we know that Satan works through people as well, right? He works through circumstances, he works through people, he works through, he's just trying to entice us whatever way he can. And, um, and promises the world. And, and then my question is, when he promises you the world, why would you even believe him? <laughs> right? He is the great liar. He's the father of lies. And he's the great tempter, not only, he's also the great deceiver. There's nobody better at deceiving as, than he is. You thought you were a pretty good faker in basketball? Okay? He, he is the greatest deceiver. The problem with deception is this. When you're tempted, you know you're being tempted. When you're deceived, by definition, you don't know it. That's why you're deceived. Right? If, if, if I'm trying to make a move in basketball and I fake to the right because I'm going to go to the left. Uh, and the guy knows my trick and he's waiting for me here on the left. <laughs> you know, he just laughs at me. <laughs> so sometimes when the enemy is trying to mess with us, uh, look to God for guidance. Don't just say, well, the grass is so green here. I think this is where I want to stay. But somebody said, the grass is greenest around the septic tank. It's very fertile over there, but it stings. So I'm saying, hey, if it looks so luscious and lush, dig a little bit. Investigate a little bit and see if it stinks. Hey, run away. Then thirdly, he takes him to the top of the temple and he says, hey, why don't you jump off of here? Let's look at, at verse. Okay, there we are. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. The word if over there, the word if over there, is not the hypothetical if. It is the, the if that, that says that it is so. In view of the fact that you are the Son of God. Since you are the Son of God. It is not like Satan is in doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows it very well. Later on in the chapter, I think maybe verse 34, uh, the demons knew who Jesus was. As Jesus is uh, casting out the demon out of a guy who was possessed. So they know... So. The head honcho, Satan, he knew very well that Jesus was the Son of God. And he says, "So since you are the Son of God, it's not if and and, and stuff. Since you are the Son of God, hey, throw yourself off this temple. And he says, for it is written. For it is written. So now Satan has not been able to get him. Now Satan is trying to get him with Scripture. As Jesus was defending himself with Scripture. But as Satan would have it, he is leaving some Scripture out. And gives an incomplete portion of the scripture that makes things look completely different. We'll, 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 we'll look at it. And uh, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And the piece that he left out, out of wherever it was, What is Psalm 91? Psalm 91, 11. The part that he left out is he shall keep you In all your ways. In all your ways. So, what he is not saying, what he he's trying to get Jesus to believe, that, hey, you just jump and and the angels will take care of you. No, God only makes himself uh, responsible for taking care of you or or having his angels being in charge over you when you're doing it his way, the way that you're supposed to go. Otherwise, he might still take care of you, but he's not responsible any longer. Now, you're responsible. You, you veer away completely from him. So, hey, good luck if you want to do it your way. So, and, and it goes on, and their hands, they shall, blah, blah, blah. It has, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's how Satan responded to, to uh, uh, Jesus responded to Satan. And then verse 13 says this, and now when the devil had ended every temptation, He departed from him until an opportune time. So Satan was going to leave him alone for a while. But he'll be back. He'll come back at an opportune time to test us. He might leave us alone for a while. But he'll come back at an opportune time to check us out, to test us again, and see if this time he might be able to get us. And he doesn't get tired of it. He tests us time and again to see if he can get through, if he can get us, if he can sway us, if he can make the pot nice enough for us to go for it. Uh, And then it says in the book of Matthew, it says, I want to say in the fourth chapter, verse, verse 11, then the devil left him. In the book of Matthew, it says, behold, angels came And ministered to him. So after 40 days of battling it out with Satan. And spending time alone with the father. Talking and visiting with the father. I spent many hours visiting with my father. Many hours visiting with my father. Sometimes it was while we were listening to classical music and in between. Sometimes it was while we were riding in the car. Lots of conversations. He was a wise, wise man. And I loved spending time with him. Uh, I'm not sure that there's a man on the face of the earth whom I honored more than my father and whom I respected more than my father. So... You can see why Jesus wanted to spend time with his father to get all the instruction that he needed, that he wanted to launch his public ministry. So I'm wondering, you have any idea? You have any suggestions what the angels might have done to minister to Jesus? Ah, you, you, your suggestion is as good as mine. <laughs> Raise a uh, huh? Raise the hood. Bring in some food. I'm all for that, baby, after 40 days. But, you know, if you have been on a fast, you have to be careful what you eat because you get, you get, your stomach starts hurting like crazy. So you just go a, a, a little bit at a time, uh, maybe some soup or whatever. You cannot just go steak and, and, and this type of thing. You, you'll be walking around like this. So um, well, food, food. Uh, anybody else? You have a suggestion? Know, what, 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 what I see in my mind's eye a little bit is like, you know how when a football team wins a game and they lift up the coach and they, they run him around the stadium a little bit? That, that's sort of how I see the angels with Jesus. They lift him over their shoulders and say, wow, our champion, our champion, our warrior, Victor, the one that can get it done for us. They minister to him. And then, you have this phrase uh, in uh, Luke, the 14th chapter, that Jesus came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. So he was filled with the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit of God. And he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And I'm thinking to myself, if uh, this would have happened to me, I would have come out oh, exhausted and drained after 40 days, hungry, and, and so on and so forth. Of course, the angels ministered to me a little while, but, but uh, he's coming out in the power of the Spirit, as if to say that though he was filled and though he was led, but there's another level in the power of the Spirit. Otherwise, for the Scriptures to say that it has no meaning, if it didn't have any meaning. <laughs> Whatever. Um, So, and then he turned the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went through all the surrounding region. He was, now the the news went out uh, about this Jesus. And then he went to a place called Nazareth. Verse 16, okay. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He so he came to Nazareth, where he has been brought up, and as his custom was. This is, a, this is you know, in the scripture, there is no word that is wasted. Everything that is in there has, is in there for a purpose. As was his custom, I think that the Lord wants us to know that this is what of Jesus' customs was. On the Sabbath day, on the Saturday of the week, he went to the synagogue. And I wonder what our custom is. Is it fishing? Horseback riding? Go to the beach? Whatever. Jesus' custom was that he would go to the synagogue. And there he would read many times a passage of, of scripture or teach. And he went and stood up to read. And, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Hold on on 17 for me there for just a second. You know, it is important for us to see that in those days, they didn't hand him a Bible. There was no Bible yet. The books, the individual books were rolled up in a scroll. They handed him a scroll. There were no addresses. Chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 16. There was not such a thing. It was just a scroll with the scriptures. But they, he didn't go pick out the scroll. Right? They handed it to him. Somebody delivered it to him. The the King James says delivered, I believe. Uh, Another translation says somebody gave it to him. Uh, somebody handed it to him. So it was not like he had an idea to go ahead and get the book of Isaiah and find a place. They, they handed it to him. It was to me like the father knew exactly what he wanted to do, and before they could accuse Jesus of going and finding the book that he wanted to read out of. They handed it to him. But when they handed him the book of Isaiah... He went to chapter to uh, what we know now as chapter sixty-one, verses one and two, and read it. I hope I can make it to the end of this, this little portion over here, and then, then we'll then we'll then we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll stop there. And so, uh, when when there was a reading in the synagogue in those days. The first part of the first portion of the reading was from the Torah, from a portion from the first five books that Moses wrote. And after that, a portion from the prophets. So it is understood here that the, prof- the portion of the Torah was already read, and now Jesus read a portion from the prophets, and he read out of Isaiah. And this is what it said. Whoops. Oops. Am I on? Okay. It is red on red. So, <laughs> the spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. So now there is a couple more, <clears throat> a couple more concepts of the spirit of God. He was filled with the spirit. The spirit led him. He was the power of the spirit was upon him, and now the spirit of the Lord is on him. Upon him. And he is being anointed by the Spirit of God. So apparently, the Scripture differentiates between these five different concepts of being filled, led, and the power being, the Spirit of God being on you, and and then the Spirit of God uh, anointing you. The Spirit of God being on him was not the idea as when, the Spirit of God was on him when he was baptized. In the form of a dove, he came on him. This portion over here has more to do with the Spirit of the God, of, of the Lord was over him. Just as when Jesus was being baptized, and he was in the water to be baptized, just as Katie was baptized this morning, she was in the water. The water was all around her. So, The water was upon her, so the Spirit of God was upon Jesus, overwhelming him, enclosing him, empowering him all the way. And not only over him, but also in him, because he was filled with the Spirit. Oh. And I'm thinking to myself. Since Jesus is my example, I want to be like that. How many people can you not influence? How many people can you not share wisdom with? How many people can you not impart with the love of Christ? Having the Spirit of God controlling you being filled with him, being led of him, and operating in the power of the Spirit of God. And him being upon you, and his anointing, in the Dutch Bible it talks about, he was gesalved. It was as if there was a salve on him, a balm on him. And then he says, the Spirit of God is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. I think I think it it, it 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 pays dividends to stop and think. What is he meaning by preaching the gospel to the poor? Is it that he is just he has just come to preach the gospel to people that have no money? I don't think so. He came to preach the gospel to people who had who were in poverty because they had no spiritual power. They had no spiritual wherewithal. It didn't primarily, though it did have to do with, it was not primarily for the people that didn't have any money. It was for those who were poor. And I want to say to you that without Christ, you are poor. But he wants us not to be wealthy per se, though maybe some of us, he wants us to be wealthy. I don't know. But it's not about wealth. It's about being rich instead of wealthy. Yeah. I tell people, we're, we're, we're not a wealthy church by any stretch. We're, we're really, if, if, if you would just divide the affluence of churches in half, we'd certainly be in, a, in the bottom half of, of, of the wealth of churches. But we're we rich. Sorry, somebody told me I went to Suriname just to roll my art a little bit better. What's that, you Joe? <laughs> Where we are rich, rich. Yeah. And so he came to make the rich, the, the, the poor, rich with the gospel. He came to preach the gospel to, to all of us. He, he, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. I'm going to check my time over here. And, and we may have to stop after this. We'll see. The brokenhearted. When you read such a thing, he came to heal the brokenhearted. My mind, I, I know I'm a little weird, but my mind immediately wanders, well, who, who are these people, the brokenhearted? Is there a thought on who might be a brokenhearted person? Well, I'll give you my definition. You probably have a a better one, and and you're welcome to share it with me, and I'll I'll, I'll receive it and and, and go with it. But my definition of of, of brokenheartedness is a, a person who was hurt, abused by someone who was supposed to protect them. I can think of a more despicable situation. I can think of a more despicable situation than the person who is supposed to protect you abuses you. Can you? But my dear brothers and sisters, see, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, if you're one of those, if you are, if you have a broken heart, if you are a broken hearted person, he says, I came to heal you. I came to heal you. So my dear brothers and sisters, if you are a broken hearted person, right here in the middle of the sermon, I want to just do this. Could everybody just close your eyes for a second? And if you are a broken-hearted person, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Brokenhearted person? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can't you can put your hand down. Thank you. Thank you. Just just put it down. That's 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 good. They can put it down. You can put it down. Yes. So that 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 that's a number of you, brothers and sisters. And I'm going to pray for you. I have no way of bringing healing to you. But the Jesus who is the healer, he wants to bring healing to you, my brothers and sisters. That that broken heart is not broken any longer because he put it back together and he brought healing to you. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of Jesus that the Holy Spirit anointed him to bring healing to the brokenhearted. Oh Lord, what a broken heart to be abused or hurt or by people who are supposed to protect us. Whether it be a teacher, whether it be a coach, whether it be a, a, a religious person, whether it be Lord, a father, a mother, a babysitter, or whoever it might be, Father. We pray, Lord, that right now, Father. That you would bring healing to these broken hearted people. That Lord, that broken heartedness would not be a part of their life any longer. I I, I didn't claim it. I didn't say it. The word of God, Jesus himself said to us that he came to heal the broken hearted. That certainly that was part of his mission. So we're asking for the very thing that you promised us, Father. In the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. So the broken hearted. Let's, let's do one more so you didn't think that I was stopping here at a brokenhearted with a purpose or whatever. Uh, and, and proclaim liberty to the captives. Okay, so now, this is not what it's saying over there, but this is certainly included, right? Certainly included. You had a broken heart and you were held captive by those who broke your heart. Anyway, it is like, remember our friend Roni from Israel? He had a mother. She's passed away now. I met her, thank God. She's just a delightful lady, a uh, sense of humor like you won't believe. Um, and she was in, in the Holocaust, a Jewish lady. And he, was, he had shared the gospel with her. And I've, I've shared this before because it's such a meaningful thing to me. It, boom, it spoke to me right away. Oh, maybe I should tell you a different story. Maybe I should tell you both stories. Well, okay. <laughs> Stick to one, pastor. Time is ticking away. All right. Uh, so he was trying to explain to his mom, Mom, you're a Christian now. You need to forgive those people who hurt you. She says, I can't do it. He says, Mom, then it was 70 years ago. 70 years ago, most of them are in their grave, and they're still haunting you. You're still being held captive by these people. How bad a situation is that? Most of them are dead in their grave, and they still hold you captive. His mom understood, and that day she decided to forgive those folks, and she was set free. The captive was set free. Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch evangelist. She was one special lady. Yes, I spent a lot of time in Amsterdam. She grew up in a place, Harlem, that's about 15 minutes away. Which the, if you go with the, the stopping train, not the direct train, the stopping train, I call it, whatever you call it in English, then the first stop is in Harlem when you go toward the Hague and stuff. And that's where she lived. And uh, an incredible evangelist. But she had also gone through the... Concentration camps. She survived it. Her sister didn't, and many others that she knew didn't. And she had gone back to Germany. And this is well after the war, traveling around like an evangelist, and she was spectacular with a very thick uh, Dutch accent. If you think I have an accent, you <laughs> and boom. Um, and so there was a crowd of people, and she taught on Forgiveness. Wouldn't you know that God had it, that one of those soldiers, one of those German soldiers was in the crowd. And he came afterwards. And he was happy that he had become a Christian. (laughs) I was one of those soldiers in the camp, but I've become a Christian in the meantime. Would you forgive me? And she she was taken aback. She had just preached on forgiveness. She says, my first reaction was not that. To forgive, my first reaction, uh, I want to do something else. Like you might have wanted to do something else. But she knew that this was, this was, a test of her faith, a test of her walk. Was she true to her walk? That she, and she says, "Come," and she forgave him. So, my dear brothers and sisters, that is a portion. This is not all of it. But that's a portion how the captives are set free. Let it go. Let it go. Those people who hurt you, that broke your heart, forgive them. God will do something very special to you, like set you free. And then some. Because, my dear brothers and sisters, when you're in that prison, And this is not a prison with metal bars. It is worse than that. It is a worse prison than metal bars. So, but when you get out of that, when you set free from the prison, then now you can operate as God wants you to operate. It is not that you're totally, how you call it, paralyzed. But there is an amount of paralysis, how you call it, Paralysis, thank you. Who said that? Thank you. Paralysis. I don't speak your language, so forgive me. (laughs) There there is an amount of paralysis that comes over you when you have that unforgiveness still in your heart. So I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters. I want to encourage you with all that I have in, in me to forgive because that sets you on a whole new path, a whole different path of being set free from those bars. And, you know, anyway, I, I won't go there. That's all right. Ah, uh, captives, recover. Okay. Well, next week we'll pick it up here um, to proclaim liberty, the, the, the recovery of the, the sight of the blind, set of liberty those who are oppressed, and so, and so on and so forth. And we go all the way to verse, I want to say, 37, hopefully next week. If we don't make it, I'm going to take my time because there's so much to learn from this fourth chapter of the book of Luke that we need to get, if we can, all the lessons in there that will help us. I'm nobody to teach anybody, right? But if God wants me to teach people, he'll give me the wherewithal, right? I'm a nobody. Uh, But but God is somebody. How, How does that go? I am a nobody who wants to tell everybody about somebody who can teach, who can save anybody.